you have a handout in front of you and I'll be actually sticking to that pretty much as you see it there. There'll be a little diversion from it. So that's the basis of the talk I'm going to give and uh, I'm now going to pray. Father, I just pray that you'll fill me up with your Holy Spirit so I can explain your word clearly and with application to our lives. We realise, Lord, that I can speak and, uh, Father, it can, your word can have no effect on our lives unless your Holy Spirit applies it to our lives. So we pray that the Spirit of Christ will be with us all and uh, with us individually so that we might obey your word and be more like your son and indeed you as well. Amen. It was one of those trips from my dad's place, which was in, I was going to say in Egypt. It wasn't in Egypt. Uh, it was uh, in Eastwood. And uh, it was an evening trip, which meant that uh, we were probably going, my father and I, I'm sure, to a birthday celebration at my brother-in-law and sister-in-law's place at Hurstville. This was some 25 years ago. And the aim of the game uh, really was for me not to turn up angry and looking like a cloud, a thundercloud had just burst all over me. Because my father was a person who had, at one level, very little interest in me and basically talked at me, over me, around me, under me and through me. And it was all about what he was doing or thinking at the time. And what made it worse, especially if you were sitting at a table, of course, is that he'd prod you to emphasise particular points, to make sure that uh, your attention was riveted. Um, And it, it was hard yards. So to survive uh, the long trip, uh, basically there were four conversations I had and uh, each was initiated by a question. And it was all going fine until he mentioned his brother. Now that was extraordinarily unusual. I'd never heard of a brother of my father ever being mentioned. I knew he had a sister, Flory, I knew who my cousin in Ireland was, uh, who was her daughter, Flory, well known, but a brother never heard of. So I just said, tell me about him. And uh, he then proceeded to explain that his brother, of course, um, told me a little bit about him growing up, but he explained to me that his brother, of course, had been in the Second World War, as my dad had been, I'm not quite sure where all this fitted into Dad's uh, service in Burma and post-war occupation of Germany. He was involved in both. But anyway, somewhere in that war experience, Dad's brother, in um, in a large ship, was uh, hit, of course. The ship was hit, of course, by a torpedo and it went down. My dad's brother was rescued. He was taken back to England to recuperate. Uh, He apparently went in and out of consciousness at various times, lingered on for 
several months and eventually died. So there it was, quite an extraordinary story. Never heard about it at all. And uh, at the end of it, I just said to him, uh, what was his name? And he said, James. So here I was, 42. By sheer accident, finding out why I'd been given the name James. It showed me how much my father loved his brother and it showed me indirectly how much my father loved me in giving such a precious name. Names are important, aren't they? It's the first thing we say about ourselves, often before we shake a person's hand uh, or say one thing about the suburb we live in or what we do, we tell people our names. And yet we have a curious disposition when we read passages like this, especially at the end of uh, Paul's letters where there are lists of names, e.g. Romans 16 uh, or e.g. Colossians 4, where there are a great deal of names in each case. We just say, oh, all the heavy theology is uh, over, all the important stuff has been said, this is just Paul saying goodbye to everyone, big deal. And we also, uh, since uh, it was mentioned, the whole issue of genealogies in the Old Testament, we, we just switch off on those and move on in the narrative. They're obviously not important. But they are. They're crucially important. And I hope to show you this, because there are several names mentioned at the end of this passage of Titus probably one of the most unlikely passages to be chosen to be preached on, to be honest, but it's an extraordinarily rich one. And you'll notice that in verses 12 to 13, Paul is giving an invitation. And in verse 12, he said this, As soon as I send Artemis, or Tychicus, to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I've decided to winter there. So who is Artemis? Notice I've made a mistake in the sheet prepared that I've spelt his name Artemis, I-S, that is the goddess of hunting and the goddess of Ephesus. This person is called Artemis, it's A-S. So who is he? Well, he's a co-worker of Paul, and that's all we can say. Totally unknown, apart from this reference in the New Testament. Later, church tradition tells us that he became the Bishop of Lystra. He also mentions Tychicus. That's the other person he's going to send to this congregation in Crete. We know who he is because he is a co-worker sent to Ephesus by Titus to relieve Timothy. We find that out in 2 Timothy 4.12. Now notice that Paul is slightly uncertain here as soon as I send Artemis or 
Tychicus to you. It's not going to send both. It's going to send one or the other and we don't know which one at the moment. Paul doesn't know which one at the moment as he's writing this letter. But what's amazing is that he's got the choice of two equally good people to send on missionary and pastoral work to replace Titus, to whom he's writing this letter, in Crete. Now immediately from these names we learn three great biblical truths. The first one is this. No one is indispensable. Titus had done a great job. But he's moving on and he's being replaced. And it doesn't matter one iota, ultimately, whether Artemis is sent or whether Tychicus is sent. They are both equally good, both walking in the Lord, both persevering with their ministries, showing the godliness they should be showing, and no one is indispensable. Thanks, Titus. Great job here. Who's next? No one is indispensable. It's a great problem for us as we grow older. Is the indispensability syndrome. We want to cling on to power, we want to cling on to authority, we want to cling on to positions... And it's not a good idea. We need to move on to let the next generation take over so that, dare I say it, even more gifted people than you or me can do the job in a different way and by God's grace more powerfully. That's how it works. So there's the first great truth. The second great truth is that God richly gifts the body of Christ. Doesn't matter where Tychicus is sent, doesn't matter whether Artemis is sent. And Paul reminds the Corinthians of this in a fabulous verse at the end of 1 Corinthians 3, where he says, all things are yours, you have it all. God doesn't shortchange you. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All things are yours. And he's reminding the Corinthians there that it doesn't matter whether they are taught by the Apostle Paul or by Apollos, the guy, as we're going to see, who took over after Paul, or whether it's Peter, one of the twelve, Cephas, It doesn't matter. All are richly gifted by God. And he goes on and says, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. So our richness comes from the fact that we are in Christ and it's even more rich because Christ draws upon the infinite riches of his Father. All things are yours. This means that when God looks at us, to use another metaphor from this time 2 Corinthians, what he sees are cracked pots, cracked vessels. That's the image he used. 
uses there. In other words, he looks at us and we're all the same. What matters is the treasure that he puts in the pots, which is his gospel. So he doesn't look at me and say, gee, isn't that church lucky to have Jim Harrison preaching this Sunday morning? No, what God sees at the moment is a series of cracked pots all in our chairs, a cracked pot out here with the gospel that he has placed in each one. All things are ours in Christ, whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or Tychicus or Artemis. And lastly, notice that Paul's done a good job. He would not be sending on Titus to do whatever or inviting Titus to retire. I I don't know what the situation is. Unless he had trained up new replacements. In fact, he trained up the two replacements so well that at this time he's not quite sure which one to send. Might be just due to circumstances, we don't know. But Paul is always training up his replacements. What's the sign of a great leader? The great leader is a person who makes him or herself redundant. That's not leadership, is it? Isn't leadership about having control and being at the centre of authority and telling people what to do and kicking heads and making sure it's done, yada, 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 yada? No. It's about training up your replacement so that when in God's timing you move on, there'll be an equally good and hopefully even better person to replace you. That takes humility. Ladies and gentlemen, we have to learn this. Now he says in the second part, going back to verse um, 12, uh, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. Isn't that interesting? It's winter at Nicopolis. I'm going to say a little bit about that at the moment. Paul's decided to stay there in winter. Now, if that was me, I'd be thinking, now, where's the Gold Coast in the ancient world? I'm getting out of here to the nice warm climes. Surely I can do some ministry there. But no, Paul is going to stay in wintry Nicopolis because there are ministry opportunities that are continuing there and worthwhile. I think that's very important. We can set up our lives so that things become easier progressively. But that wasn't what the Apostle Paul did. He set up his life so that there would be ministry and he would do it in hard times and in easy times, in difficult climes and in good climes. And why has he decided to stay at Nicopolis? 
It's an interesting name, Nicopolis. It means the city of victory. How did he get that name? Well, the Emperor Augustus, after whom our month August is named, that should give you a sense of his importance, built the city when he defeated Antony and Cleopatra in 31 BC. And then Augustus reigned for 43 years and changed the face of Rome and impacted Western civilization in various ways. So here's the city of victory proclaiming the triumph of the Julian household, that's the household that Augustus belongs to, and the beginning of his reign, the triumph over all his enemies, and the golden age has returned to Rome. Well, in this city of victory, there is now a new victory taking place, unseen to the city itself, unseen to the outside observers of the city, but it's taking place. And it's a much greater victory. It is a victory over sin that's occurring through Paul's preaching of the gospel there, through his ministry to the congregation. It's a victory that has already been established in the lives of the people at Crete as well by Titus' faithful ministry. You see... When the greats and the powerful of this world proclaim how wonderful they are and they are the meaning of it all, they are in fact bit players on the stage because God is accomplishing his enormous victory in the cosmos actually through ordinary little people like Artemis and Tychicus and Titus, indeed you and me. Verse 13, do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Who's Zenos, the lawyer? Well, he's unknown apart from this reference. He's obviously an expert in Roman law. That's all you can say. But what's interesting is his name. His name is an abbreviation of Zenodorus. What does that mean? Gift of Zeus. So his parents, when they saw this little bundle of joy that had just been born, said to themselves, what are we going to call this kid? Well, let's call him after our main god, Zeus. And let's say he's a gift of Zeus, because he is. And yet... He has been changed. His identity has been totally transformed because he is no longer a gift of Zeus. The name remains, but the identity is totally different. He is a child of God. He is God's beloved in Christ. He is God's forgiven in Christ. He is God's justified in Christ. He will be God's resurrected in Christ and he will be God's glorified in Christ. New nature, new destiny, past destiny dealt with, new destiny announced. Again, we're seeing some interesting truths emerge 
from these funny little names. The first thing I just want to say to you is that being a Christian professional and indeed being a Christian tradesman matters. One of the great mistakes I think we're making in Sydney, um, and I'll put it in general ways, is to be saying, look, um, forget all that professional training stuff. What really matters is the ministry. You ought to be thinking about the ministry. Get out of your profession. Think about the ministry. Enter it now. Now, I don't want to discourage people to go into the ministry. We need more because the fields are white and the harvest workers are few. But God also calls us to be professionals, to be good lawyers, to be good teachers, to be good nurses, and so on and so forth, so that we can minister to people in their contexts, so we can show them what Christ is like and see transformed lives through that way. That's the case with Zenos, or a tradesperson like Lydia, who makes these beautiful purple cloths. Erastus, who's the city governor of Corinth. Elites and tradespeople. And we make a mistake often, don't we, of thinking it's the mind that matters. It's the great theologian. It's the great teacher. It's the great yada, yada, yada. But those with practical caring gifts... Those with trades gifts are equally valuable in God's church and without them the church falls apart. All gifts come from God. All gifts are an expression of his richness and we ought to be thankful for professional and trades people and what other gifted people we have, no matter how great or small or multiple or single their gifts might be. First point. Second point and I've made this, I'm not going to go it into great, uh, great depth. Um, Zenos was born again of the Spirit. That's his new identity. Wasn't a child who was born of Zeus. No. And lastly, this is the only place where Zenos is mentioned. This is the only place where Artemis is mentioned. Obviously they're not important. Well, if they weren't important, God would not have put them in. And we are told that God has written our names on his palms. We are profoundly important to him. Our identity, our names are crucial to him because he authors who we are and sets our destiny up well in advance of anything we do. So three little truths there. Apollos, well, he's a highly trained guy. He's done professional speaking one, professional speaking two, professional speaking three, Toastmasters one, Toastmasters two, Toastmasters three and Toastmasters four in his professional training. He's a rhetorically trained speaker. He's done the university stuff. 
He's called a worthy man in the book of Acts. That's what it means. Comes from Alexandria and he's a Jew. Knew the scriptures very well because Priscilla and Aquila taught him the scriptures. Acts 18.24. And then when Paul left, he's the one who takes over the church. So he's a powerful person, used greatly by God. And notice what then happens in verse 16. Do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. So Christian hospitality and care for missionaries matters. We need to be contributing to missionary work. We need to be showing hospitality to people. We need to be looking out for the practical needs of Christian travellers and Christian workers where we can. Presumably, Zenos and Apollos also visited Crete and went with all the help that they could from the church there at Nicopolis. In verse 14, Paul starts to give his final charge to the Christians of Crete. Notice what he says, verse 14. He says, There are people who must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for the daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Notice he's just speaking to everyone. It's our people. He's no longer addressing Titus, to whom the letter is written. He's addressing everyone, the entire flock. And notice the parallel verses. He's already said this before. Notice in verse 8 what he says there. He says... Um, in that particular verse um, and I want you to stress these things so that you who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves in doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. And there again he says a few verses late to devote themselves to doing what is good. Why repeat it? He's only said it a few verses before because we're slow learners. And repetition helps. And notice the interesting thing, that these good works come or originate with grace and they're sustained by grace. Notice in verse 8, before that, a few verses before that, Paul has just spoke about Christ having saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is why we live productive lives. It's because God has worked his grace in our lives beforehand. That's why. And notice what he then does in verse 14. Having said that, he then says at the end of verse 15, grace be with you all. Our continuing ministry is empowered by grace. So the great truth being illustrated here is that our works of mercy flow from God's mercy to us and their continuing power flows from God's continuing mercy to us. We obviously see that in verse 14b that Christians have to act as benefactors. 
we have to ensure that those that we are looking after and those that we are sending on in mission have the daily necessities so that we might live productive lives as well as them. So providing for others in the cases of urgent need is important. I don't have to really elaborate on that point. But what's interesting here, and we don't pick it up, is this. He's saying this to our people. He's saying to all of us, be benefactors. In the ancient world, the benefactor was one person. You knew who he was because there's an inscription erected in the public marketplace who tells you who's the wealthy guy at the moment who's giving the money to the town. He's the benefactor. But Paul is saying here that the Christian community, everyone, contributes to the necessities of others. Last thing we see is a few salutations. Notice in verse 15a, he says, everyone with me sends you greetings. So the Christian community matters more than individualism. Everyone with me also sends the greetings. The body of Christ cares and communicates across distances. So that's why it's so important that we have continuous communication, for example, with our missionary partners, our link missionaries. Verse 15b, notice what our Christian identity is about. He says, everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. So notice, the apostolic teaching of the gospel in the faith. That's our Christian identity. Keep praying for Stu week by week as he teaches the word of God so that we might be clear on what the apostolic teaching is in the faith. And notice mutual love. Greet those who love us in the faith. That's the other great identity marker of the believer. Last of all, wrapping up what this text says, is the benediction in verse 15. Grace be with you all. I want to say something about how unusual Paul's letters are. Notice at the ending, grace be with you all. Notice in verse 4, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Saviour. Paul doesn't know how to write an ancient letter. In an ancient letter, for 500 years before the time of Paul, this is what you did. You said, greetings, and then you had a prayer, which was basically, may the God give you good health. Said what you said in the letter, it was all trivia. Ancient letters are not full of great content like Paul's. And then you said goodbye. Paul changes 500 years of letter-writing history here. He says, Grace and peace from God the Father and 
Christ Jesus, our Saviour, doesn't just say greetings, fills it with theological substance. And then what he often does, doesn't do it in this letter, is to have a prayer, which is not the usual prayer, may the God give you good health, prosperity doctrine, but it's full of teaching about the gospel. Have a look at Philippians 1, 9 to 11, for example, when you go home. That's just one of the many prayers Paul starts his letters off with. And then, at the very end, he says, grace be with you all. Doesn't just say goodbye. So notice, Paul starts with grace, he prays for his converts, and he ends with grace. Is grace the dynamic of your life? I'm going to give you a little example of this in my own life. As you know, I'm a very odd person uh, for more reasons than you know. But one of the odd things I do is to sit in my study and to write articles and books. And you uh, think I'm obviously very smart. What you don't know is that in my undergraduate record, there were 11 failures. And some of those twice in the same unit. Not a very good start. Well, obviously, I then went on and did more studies. No, I didn't. I then worked in high schools for 15 years. Thought that was my job. Great job. But eventually, of course, did my master's and did my doctorate and ended up where I am. Well, obviously, I'm doing fabulously well now. I'm an exceptionally smart scholar, yada, yada, yada. Again, that's not true. I'm a New Testament scholar whose Greek is pretty ordinary. In fact, you could be a bit more truthful and say it's absolutely atrocious. I've not done three years of Greek. I've done two little courses in Greek and I've had to teach the rest myself. If I was serious as a scholar, as other contemporaries of me are, I would have done three years of Greek. Worse than that, my Latin is very rusty. It's high school Latin. And I almost failed that in year 12 anyway. Worse than that is that as a New Testament scholar, I'm expected to know German. Well, I've done the German course, the German reading course, and it hasn't helped me one bit. I still use Mr. Google very often in handling German. And I've just found out, to my great horror, as I'm working through Italian articles and books at the moment, literally at the moment, that I've no idea what Italian's saying. I can have a good guess. So once again, it's Mr Google that helps me out. It'd be great to think, too, I was a scholar that is really smart on a podium who can answer questions very quickly. I'm not. I'm terrified. And what you don't see is that on the podium... Underneath the podium, my hands are like this because I find answering questions quite distressful. And this just reminds me that the answers have to come from God. And sometimes I nail them and sometimes I don't. But you know what? Because my Greek is so atrocious, because my Latin is so rusty, 
because my German is non-existent, as indeed is my Italian, because I've failed 11 units in my undergraduate studies, I know I'm a fraud. And I know that I'm nothing. And I know that I have to pray to God and depend on his grace. And you know what? He keeps pushing me into deeper water all the time. Don't worry. Don't worry. Excuse me, I can't, I can't swim. I'm going to drown. Don't worry. And God has blessed the most unlikely person because of his extraordinary grace to me. Ladies and gentlemen, we're all the same. We're all frauds. All our gifting is inadequate. Our experience is inadequate. Our personality at times is not up to the task. But it's the transforming grace that matters. It's the treasure that God puts in the broken pots. That's what matters. And through ordinary people, he changes the world. Amen.